All right. Awesome. So tonight we are again, we're going to be in Luke chapter 22. Go ahead and grab your Bible. I'm going to be teaching from the New King James Version. And tonight we're going to see three things. We're going to see the preparation. We're going to see the Passover and we're going to see the proud. Again, we're just looking at the first 34 verses of this chapter tonight. Uh, But there's so much in here. Um, I think it's such a beautiful scene that we get a very famous scene. I mean, the Last Supper, we've all seen the painting, right? We've all seen the painting where Jesus and his 12 disciples, they go and they they get the table and they all sit on one side, right? We all know that from the painting. Um, but the idea is we want to tonight, we want to come in with a fresh mind and says, all right, Lord, what do you have for us tonight? It, this is one of those stories where we've all heard it before. But Lord, show us what it is that you have for us, for each of us as individuals. Amen. So with that said, let's jump right into it. We are in Luke 22, and what we're going to see is this is Jesus' last day or two, um, but up to his crucifixion. So we're at the end of his earthly ministry in that sense um, prior to the cross. So keep that in mind. And very first, verses 1 through 13, we're going to see the preparation. Uh, Let's look at verses 1 through 6. It says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. So right off the bat, the first thing that we're seeing here is that we're told that the religious leaders were trying to kill Jesus. Again, they have been unable to do so for three and a half years. They have had many, um, I would say, what they thought would be opportunities, and Jesus slips through their hands, right? And it's just the time was not right yet. Jesus had ministry to do. He hadn't gone to the cross yet. He hadn't uh, proven himself, so to speak, as Messiah to the world. He hadn't shown all these things. He hadn't taught his disciples. But see, that time was drawing near now. And we're told that those religious leaders, though they couldn't kill him before this, now they're plotting and they're trying to figure out a way. It tells us in verse one and two, they wanted to do it without upsetting people. And see, right right away, we're given the setting. We're told that this was happening at the Feast of Unleavened Bread as it drew near, which was called Passover. And see, that's really important. Because this was the biggest feast, the biggest event that Jerusalem would have every year. And see, we're actually told in Matthew 26, 2 and Mark 14, 1, it tells us that two days prior to Passover, this is when this is taking place. So we actually have an actual setting of of what did this look like. So they're preparing for Passover. And see, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they were essentially connected. You would have Passover, and that would occur, and then Following Passover, the event, the single day event, you'd have this seven day feast of unleavened bread. And see, Passover, if you're unfamiliar with this, the reason that this came to be, if you remember from Exodus 12, 14 to 15, it was the people looking back, remembering that God had delivered them, that in, in Exodus, it's that he would deliver them as they put the, the lamb's blood over the, the doorpost, right? If they put it over and around the doorpost, they would be saved. That angel of death would pass over them. That's where the term Passover came from. But we're told in Exodus 12, 14 through 15, that they were to remember this year after year to have this feast in memorial to the fact that God delivered his people from Egypt. 
Egypt was always a sign of the flesh. It always symbolized um, going back to sin or back to the flesh. And when they were in that place, they were absolutely miserable, right? They were enslaved. And so the idea was you would have Passover and then the next week long, you would have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because see, leaven, we've talked about this already in weeks prior, that leaven was symbolic of sin in the word. And so at this point, what, he, what the Lord commanded them to do is have a week-long feast where there wasn't any leaven in the bread. So basically, they were, sim- they were to remember that, hey, we've been delivered by God. Now we're to be delivered from sin, to live like a people that desire to live for moral purity, fleeing sin and the things of this world. That's what all this event means, right? But Josephus, the Jewish historian, he actually says that the population of Jerusalem, it would swell up and grow out to over 2 million people because you'd have all of these Jews that were coming in. These They would make pilgrimages, right, into uh, Jerusalem to the temple so that they could sacrifice and be together for Passover to honor the Lord's command in Exodus 12. So with that in mind, here are the religious leaders, and they're like, man, we'd love to kill Jesus, get him out of the picture, but we're afraid of people. We're afraid of men. We're afraid of their opinions and what they may think of us if we take out Jesus, because here's the reality. Normally, you would have people there that would believe in Jesus, but now you have millions of people coming in, and many are coming from Capernaum, right? That's Jesus's resident town where they saw him do many miracles, Many people coming from the Galilee region that saw all of his ministry there and just the power of God upon him. Like Acts 10, 38 talks about Jesus. It says that that the power of God was upon him and he went about healing those who were oppressed by the devil, right? There were people coming there and saying, man, it's Passover. We believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And if the religious leaders killed Jesus, these people will uproar. They'll stone him, they'll beat him, right? So they're like, we don't want men to be mad at us. But can I tell you what's crazy about this? their heart was worried about what men thought about them. They were afraid of what men would think. They weren't concerned about the fact that they were about to murder an innocent man who they knew was innocent. They just didn't like the way he went about his messianic ministry. They said, you don't fit our box, what we want. And so to do that, we're going to get rid of you. you. You won't exalt us. We are going to destroy you. And see, their whacked out way of thinking was that they were still righteous if they could kill Jesus. And see, this is so wild to me. They said, we just want to be accepted to men. Is this not the same thing we battle with day by day? In this world, we say, man, we may not literally kill someone, but we care about the opinions of men, oftentimes more than the opinions of God. And see, it tells us in Matthew 26, 4 through 5, it says they plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So again, they knew that people believed he was the son of God, but they did not. They knew that people believed he was the Messiah, but they did not. But they did not care. They just wanted to save face. They wanted to save their public image more than anything else. And that's all they cared about. And so it's scary because they were risking risking the fact they might kill the proclaimed son of God and Messiah that they were supposed to be waiting for. But they said, it doesn't matter. We just want to keep our power. We want to keep our prestige. We want to keep our position. And so, man, we always have to check our hearts, man. What kind of things are we putting above the Lord? Are we not humbling ourselves in because we're just too proud? See, this is the religious leaders at this point. But see, 
as they were trying to come up with how they could get Jesus, verses three through four, it tells us that one of the 12, 12 apostles, Judas Iscariot, actually approached them to, to plot the betrayal of Jesus. <laughs> and so this is crazy because you look at it, right? And it says that Satan entered Judas. And John 13, two, it says that the devil put it into his heart. So there's a big discussion to be had here. You know, I mean, I don't really like to have it. I don't really, if I'm being honest with you, I don't care how this really played out in the sense, did Satan possess him or was he, was he, um, you know, just led by Satan? Here's the fact. What is a follower of Jesus Christ doing, following his flesh, following and allowing Satan into his life in any way, especially if it really is a possession case, if that's the, the, what happens here. This is wild. At some point, Judas, if he ever believed, he walked away from Jesus completely to allow this to happen, to be able to say that Satan entered him. We know, and now I know it's different because we're filled with the Holy Spirit as we've accepted Jesus Christ. But when we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, there's no more room for possession. Amen. Now there's room for oppression. The enemy can attack us. And there's a lot of room for us to go out in our flesh and to go do wicked things. But we need to stop and the Holy Spirit should be checking us as we start to move towards these things that are wicked. But see, I just have to tell you, you don't just wake up one day possessed by Satan as a Christian. You just don't. Something was happening here. There was some compromise. And I'll tell you what it was. He idolized money being greedy. And you might say, well, where did I get that from? Well, Matthew 26, 15, it proves that his motives were greed. He walked up to the, the, the religious leaders. He sought them out and he asked them, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? This is Judas saying, man, I want some money. <laughs> I want to get paid. I, and I don't know what his motive is. Some people try to say, well, maybe his motive was that he was let down, that Jesus wasn't coming and ruling and reigning like he expected him to, like he was a zealot. Or maybe he thought by, by turning Jesus in, over into the hands of the enemy that he would uh, more quickly bring the kingdom into place. But we can't make those kinds of assumptions. First of all, that's nowhere in scripture. And secondly, it doesn't matter. Because we know later in this section, Jesus is going to say, man, it would have been better for you to have never been born. You made a terrible, terrible decision. That's an understatement, right? But how did it happen? He let Satan come in there. He gave him a foothold. <laughs> like Romans 13, 14 says not to do, right? And see, Satan saw that and he took the opportunity and he thought that this was going to be the way through Judas's willing uh, disobedience and straying away from, from God, Satan was able to enter in and this abominable plan of Satan occurred and began to take place at the hand of Satan through Judas. Now, again, you might say, well, is Judas forced into doing this? I don't believe so. I think about verses like James 1, 13 through 15. It says, let no man say when he is, when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So that right there tells us, well, look, at God is not the one making us do things. He's not the one tempting us to do things. It's our wicked flesh that and desires that entice us. And Satan will capitalize on those things. Also, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So if this 
sin of greed was tempting to Judas. There was a way out according to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, but he didn't take the way of escape. He gave into his flesh and Satan played Judas perfectly for his plan, right? But here's the irony in all this. Didn't Satan kind of play himself here? Think about this for a second. You have Jesus's death upon the cross and Satan's thinking, man, I did it. I killed him. But we're told in Colossians chapter two, verse 15, that the cross, Jesus's cross upon that cross, he disarmed the principalities and the powers of wickedness, right? And eventually we know that he'll crush the head of Satan, fulfilling Genesis 3.15. And this is all revealing God's sovereignty in this whole thing. And so again, yes, there's a free will action of Judas. And no, God did not force him to do that. But God saw it, God prophesied it, and Judas went out and Satan thought he was beating God. But in reality, he was opening the door to salvation. <laughs> the, the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world will be crucified exactly as Isaiah 53 said, exactly as what Psalm 22 said, all these different things in the Old Testament that prophesied this. It's crazy because you'd think Satan would be smarter than that, right? But he's not God's antithesis. He does, he's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. He's a created being. But in this case, he thought he was going to win. And so the Lord used it to get Jesus to the cross. Keep that in mind. I'm not saying it's a good thing in the sense that Judas went and did this, but the Lord has a way of, of, of bringing everything together for his glory. Amen? And so verses 5 through 6, it gives the details of the agreement. Essentially, this says they were very glad to pay Judas to do this. <laughs> they, they said, hey, this is great. Give us a, a delivery of Jesus that's very stealth-like where no one's going to know that it's us doing this. We'll get him. We'll take him over to Rome, and Rome will kill him. That's what they're thinking. So they're like, Judas, this is great. You can tell us where Jesus is going to be, and we'll just show up where there's no crowd, where there's no multitude. And so it tells us in Matthew 26, 15, the amount that they agreed upon. They counted out 30 pieces of silver as a bounty for Jesus. We know that according to Zechariah eleven twelve, this fulfilled that prophecy that the Messiah would be sold out for that exact amount of 30 pieces of silver. It is also equivalent to the price that uh, uh, the price of a slave in Exodus 21, 32. But all of this is because of Judas's greed. It reminds me of 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 through 10. It says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. And into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Let me tell you something about Judas. He sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. What he thought would bring him some kind of satisfaction and joy. Instead, all it brought were those 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 many sorrows piercing him. It brought destruction and perdition. And it's, an, it's a perfect example of, man, Satan in our flesh tell us that this is the wise thing to do. And after we partake, man, Judas came back. He threw those coins on the ground and said, it's, just, it's not right. And instead of repenting, though, we know that Judas went out and he hanged himself. It resulted in his destruction and judgment thereafter. So obviously we want to be wise and heed to the, to the word of God, heed those, those checks that the spirit gives us when we're starting to stray off after lusting after money, being greedy for things of this world. Maybe not just money, but maybe there's a relationship or a, um, 
I don't know, a career that you're chasing after. And you say, man, I want that. Maybe there's a place that you're chasing after. And you say, that's going to solve everything. That's going to fix it. Don't, don't bet on it. <laughs> now, if the Lord leads you, praise the Lord for that. You go where the Lord leads you. You do the things the Lord leads you in. But you be ready with an open hand to say, Lord, this is yours. You take from me what you need to take from me. I want to trust and seek after you. The things of this world will never satisfy. Amen. And so verses 7 through 13 Look at what happens here. Peter and John are going to be sent by Jesus to go prepare Passover. Look what it says here. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house, which, which he enters, then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room there make ready. So they went and found it just as he had said to them and they prepared the Passover. So something pretty interesting here. Verse seven, first of all, it tells us it was the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. You see, many people have... Uh, kind of a, a, a hesitation on how to teach all of these parallel accounts because you have sometimes where it says that Jesus was crucified on Passover, right? We have, uh, it, which was, you know, is that a Thursday? Is it a Friday? Uh, when they're preparing this, this, this animal or this meal on Passover, would this be Thursday or Friday? And there's conflicting evidence on, on both sides that say, well, what is it, which day? For me personally, this is what I think on this. Jewish culture at that time, they considered a day to be from sunset to sunset, right? So in other words, at sunset on Thursday night, that became Friday technically. And it was Friday all the way until sunset that following evening, right? So I believe what we're looking at here is that Jesus is giving them, telling them, hey, go prepare the Passover so that we can eat it. And we'll eat it in the evening after the sun sets. We're going to eat of this meal together. That would technically make it Friday. And then still allow Jesus to be uh, slain as the Lamb of God on Friday, on, on that day, um, on the Passover. And whether it's a Thursday or a Friday, it's the same thing. It's all happening within the same day in my mind, right? I hope that makes sense. So they can eat the meal after the sunset. It's the same day that Jesus will be crucified upon the cross that next morning and afternoon because they went sunset to sunset. I hope you're tracking with me, but it's something that people discuss and kind of get confused over. But this made that possible. If you view it that way, he can both he can be the perfect Passover lamb sacrificed on Passover while this still being the day of Passover for them to gather and have the meal together. But verse 8 shows us this. Something I believe very secretive, right? In verse 8, Jesus told them, "Go and prepare the Passover for us." And they said, "Well, where do you want us to prepare it?" And he told them all of these kind of like strange instructions of sorts. First of all, we note that he sends just Peter and John. He didn't send all 12 of his apostles. I believe, I, I know this for a fact, that Jesus knows all things. He knows that Judas is going to betray him. He says, if I let Judas know where we're going to meet for dinner, I may not get this dinner in with my disciples, with my apostles, with my friends, with my brothers. I want to have this meal. And also, I think there's a reality where if, if anyone finds out where Jesus is having this meal, 
I mean, there's 2 million people in town. They're going to come and try to seek out Jesus. And knowing Jesus, he would serve them. He would take care of everyone that had need. And tonight was about, man, I'm going to stay with my boys and I'm going to teach them. This last night that I have with them, I want to fellowship with them. These guys that have been through the ringer with me, man, that have gone through for three and a half years of ministry. Jesus says, this is about me eating and partaking with them. So they wanted to avoid word getting out and they wanted to have an undisturbed meal together. So Jesus just sends two of them and he starts telling them all these like, like subtle, like, I, I think it's kind of like the triumphant entry. Remember a couple weeks ago, we were looking at this when Jesus told them, Hey, you got to go and find a colt and then start loosening the colt. And if anyone asks, just tell them like, like, Hey, it's for the Lord and they'll let you take it. Right. It was like specific yet vague at the same time. Like Jesus knew what he was doing, but the disciples didn't really know. That's what I see in this section here because they're told, hey, go look for a guy that's carrying a pitcher of water, okay? To us, we're like, that's a really weird thing. But it would be weird in that culture because um, usually a woman would be carrying a pitcher of water. Men carried water in like skins, right? So like in, in, in wine skins or, or a carrier of sorts. So for a man to be carrying this pitcher, it would be like, okay, that was very vague, but it's specific enough to where, hey, we see that one guy with the pitcher. Then it says, hey, follow him into the home. Then ask for the master of the house. That master of the house will come to you. You tell him you're looking for a room for the teacher to have his meal for Passover. And he'll say, oh, yeah, I'll show you a room. And it's going to turn out that it's actually upstairs somewhere. <laughs> I mean, these are the kinds of things that Jesus does with his disciples, right? He says, hey, just trust me. Go out. I'm going to give you instruction. And you go do these things, trusting that I will provide exactly what needs to take place. And see, it is kind of mysterious as they go out, just like it was with the triumphal entry. They weren't sure exactly, like, we're not even sure the village name. We're not sure of where this donkey came from with the triumphal entry. In the same case, there, it just turns out there's some believer in this home that whether it's prearranged or not, is going to have Jesus and his disciples go up there and, and use this furnished large upper room for the meal. But the disciples didn't know that. But yet they go out in faith and they obey the word of Jesus and they fulfilled everything that Jesus needed to have done by just obeying his word. And I love that. This is the same for us. There's so many times where Jesus calls us to go do things and we're not sure how it's going to work out. But yet, as we go, we're just like Abraham in that sense, right? Hebrews 11.8, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. And see, verse 13, did you know what it said here? It said, they found it just as he had said to them. <laughs> this is how it works. We obey the voice of the Lord in our life through the, the Holy Spirit, speaking through his word, speaking through uh, fellow believers that are filled with the spirit, directing us, guiding us in ways where we're not sure exactly where we're going to end up. But when we trust the Lord, we get there. And we realize, man, this is what happens when we trust and obey the Lord. His will takes place and great things happen. These men will be blessed to partake in the last Passover that Jesus will have on earth. And really the last Passover we're going to find out that he's going to have until the kingdom. Amen. So what a blessing to obey the voice of the Lord. Let's look at the next section. We have the Passover verses 14 through 23. Let's look at verses 14 through 18. It says, when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. 
Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So what we have here is Jesus and his disciples are partaking of the Passover meal. They've gotten into this upper room. They've prepared it. They're there together. Tells us in verses 14 to 15 that all 12 apostles were there with Jesus. He's there and he fervently desired, it says, to eat this supper, to eat this Passover meal, this last supper with his friends, with, with these these people who he loved, right? And see, this tells us, this, this just speaks so loudly of Jesus's desire to commune and fellowship with his people. And you see, he desired to fellowship and commune with his disciples because they faithfully followed and believed upon him as Lord and Savior. And see, their willingness to follow the Lord, even when it seemed kind of mysterious, right? <laughs> they had the voice of the Lord, nothing else. It led to them being blessed with this meal, sitting in this place going, man, I can't believe that like, this is it, man. We get to have Passover with the Lamb of God, <laughs> with the Messiah himself, with God the Son. Like what a blessing. And let's be real. You and I, we get to have this kind of commune, uh, and, uh, a communion and fellowship with Jesus Christ. Tomorrow morning here at our church, we're going to do communion in accordance to scripture and, and according to this section, because we feel like, man, what a blessing it is to remember the new covenant and see Jesus talked about the fact that, hey, I wanted to have this meal with you before I suffer. See that suffering that Jesus is speaking of, it would usher in the new covenant. The new covenant being that we are saved by grace, by faith. When we confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we are saved. And it's a covenant of faith, just as the old covenant was. But now it's the completed covenant in this sense. Jesus has done the work. When he has gone to the cross, once he had done that, and he died in, in our place, and the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And he was bruised and wounded for our transgressions and our iniquities. And now we're healed because of what he did at the cross. That's the new covenant. And he says, the reality is, I wanted to eat this meal with you before I go. And it's not just that Jesus is going to go die. <laughs> Let's be clear. It's that this is the last time I'm partaking this before I start this new thing, this new covenant. Before this new era is ushered in where anyone who believes upon Jesus will be saved. Like Romans 10, 13 says, like John 1, 12 tells us. And see, Jesus, although that suffering was so near, we say, why would he go through with this? We know Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is sitting now because he doesn't need to stand. He doesn't need to run. He doesn't need to work anymore. The work has been done at the cross and he had fervent desire to fellowship with you and I, to commune with us. And the only way we can do that and experience it like the disciples did and greater than even that is by putting our trust in Jesus Christ. And see, that fervent desire, that's what led him to endure the passion. We talk about the passion of the Christ, right? The fact that he, he poured out that, that, that all his, his love, it, it, it actually brought him to the cross and he was willing to take that and bear that for you and I, for sinners that could not save themselves. And so Jesus says, before I suffer, I want to have this meal and I'm not going to partake of it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom. He said in verse 16 and in verse 18, he took the cup and said he wouldn't drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So we say, well, what does this mean? The fact is Jesus is saying 
This is the last Passover meal that I'm going to take because it looks backwards. It looks back to this great covenant. How many times in scripture did God say, I'm the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, etc." It always looked back to when God delivered the people Israel from Egypt. And that's a blessing. We still look back on God's faithfulness for that. But now with Jesus going to the cross, we get to look forward. And what we're looking forward to is the same event I believe Jesus was speaking of. In Revelation 19.9, there's an event called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And it's a glorious celebration in the midst of Jesus. All those who are, have believed in Jesus will be there and we'll be celebrating with him. We'll be partaking in that feast. And if you remember in Luke chapter 14, 15 through 24, one of the Pharisees said, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. He was referring to this very event, the marriage supper of the lamb. And Jesus corrected him and said, hey, look at self-righteous Pharisees are not the ones that are going to partake in this, in the parable of the great supper the man sent out his servant and said, go tell everyone in the, in the hedges and in the, in the highways and the byways, go tell everyone out there that my house may be filled. I want people to come and eat. And the idea is that those men who were invited shall not taste my supper. Like those, the, the, the Israel and, and the Jews, they, they rejected Jesus. But now you and I and Jew, Jewish people that have put their faith in Jesus, we now get invited into the supper. What a blessing that is, right? And so Jesus is looking ahead of that. And he said, one day I will partake of this again, but not until then. Jesus has not partaken in the Passover meal and he's waiting for us all to be together with him. That's really exciting to me. That, that should give us an endurance to say, man, I want to experience that. I mean, I know we all do that. I hope you guys look forward to food as much as I do, right? There's certain meals, certain restaurants. That I go, man, I can't wait to eat at that place again. Hutchins Barbecue out here in Texas, I would eat that place. Maybe that's a paid plug. Maybe they'll send me some free brisket or something for, for throwing that in here. But I just, <laughs> seriously though, I, I look forward to eating in some of these places. It's, it's, it's just some food. How about the supper? The married supper of the lamb. I can't wait for that. I hope you're as excited as I am, man. That's going to be awesome. No calories in heaven either. You get to eat whatever you want. That's cool. But the reality is Jesus is waiting because he longs and he's looking forward to this. He says, I long to do this with my people. The same way that he fervently desired to do it with his apostles, he fervently desires that you and I would commune with him and be there in the kingdom with him. Amen. And so in 19 through 20, Jesus is now going to institute what we refer to as the, the, the Lord's Supper, right? Look at 19 through 20. It says, and he took bread gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the son of man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves, which of them it was who would do this thing. So first of all, we see Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. And what he's doing is he's reinterpreting the elements of the, of the Seder meal, of the Passover, right? To reflect the new covenant. You see, normally the bread that was there and all the other edible elements, so to speak, of the Passover meal, they were to reflect upon like affliction and suffering and uh, like bitterness, right? You had the bitter herbs and stuff. So the idea was looking back on the time that they suffered in Egypt. 
But now Jesus took the bread, he blessed it, then he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. He said, do this in remembrance of me. I'll tell you, instead of remembering the suffering of Israel, Jesus is saying, now you're going to remember the suffering that I will endure at the cross. The suffering that I have endured at the cross. He told his disciples it was the suffering that was coming for us. We know it's the suffering that occurred at the cross. But he says, I am reinterpreting this to give you understanding of what this all means. That my body was given for you. And he says, this is given to all those who would believe in my name. That's the idea here. It says in Hebrews 10, 9 through 10, that he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. That's supposed to be the son talking to the father. And then it says, he takes away the first that he may establish the second. Speaking of covenants. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And see, when Jesus willingly obeyed God the Father and through his willing offering, <laughs> he was sacrificed and we now have been sanctified once and for all. And see, you might look at this and say, who does he think he is to reinterpret the Passover meal that had been happening for you know a thousand years, thousands of years, right? But Jesus says, I'm going to make a new covenant between man and God. No mere man can do this. Either Jesus is a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. <laughs> and his resurrection a few days later would prove, I believe, he's not a lunatic or a liar. He's Lord. But it says that he took a cup after supper. And it's interesting because I don't know much at all. So forgive me if you are of Jewish heritage and you're and I'm, I'm not doing well with this. But the Seder meal, right? There's four cups of, of Seder, right? And those cups, they represent four different expressions of deliverance. They come out of Exodus 6, 6 through 7. Well, the cup right after supper, if that's the one that Jesus is picking up here in verse 20, he's saying this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Well, that cup used to, in the Seder meal, it represented the phrase that's found in Exodus 6, 7 that says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. So Jesus took this cup that's supposed to express redemption and he reinterpreted it and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And see, any person that studied the Bible, they would know like Jeremiah 31, that whole chapter, it, specifically verses 31 through 40, it talks about the new covenant that God would put in place for those that accept it. Now, it was intended for Israel, but for the most part right now, Israel has not accepted it. They've rejected Jesus Christ. They've rejected this new covenant, but it's gone out to the Gentiles. It's gone out to you and I, fellow believers in the Lord that are not of Jewish heritage, right? And those, those Jewish people that have put their trust in Jesus, we call them completed Jews because they're complete now. They've trusted in Jesus. But we as Gentiles have been grafted in and redemption has been made ours because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, because of the blood of Jesus that was shed at Calvary. We now have entered in to this blessed new covenant. It says in Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And you see any kind of uh, covenant had to be sealed with blood in the Old Testament. We know that. In Galatians 4, 4 through 5, it tells us that we've been adopted as children of God. And that adoption has been signed and sealed and delivered, so to speak, by Jesus' blood. Amen? 
And so that should make us excited. And so whenever we do what Jesus just said here, he said, do this in remembrance of me. He's talking about breaking the bread and drinking the wine. We use juice in our culture because there's taboo around wine in our culture. I hope we understand why we don't use wine. Um, you know, some, some people have no issue with it. Some people do struggle with things like that. So we use juice because it, they're symbols. They're very spirit-filled symbols, okay? There's different stances over the church history of what happens when we partake of communion. Is the bread and wine actually Jesus' blood and body, or does it become his body once you have partaken? I don't believe in either of those. I believe they're symbols that when we do this, we are to examine ourselves, like 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 28 talks about. We're to examine ourselves and to sit down and say, man, am I really trusting in Jesus tonight? Am I walking out in true faith that Jesus is my Lord? And am I walking in the power of his spirit and not in the power of myself? You see, that's why it's so important to do this. He says, do this in remembrance. And what are we remembering? Remembering the death of Jesus upon the cross. That spot that gave us entry into this covenant with God, that we may have peace with God. We've been justified through the work of Jesus Christ according to Romans 5.1. And he became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God, right? I believe that's 2 Corinthians 5, 21, I believe. Uh, but the idea is through his blood, we've now entered in and when we partake of communion, we remember that. It's a good reminder and it should set us back. It should kind of reset us to true north, amen? That's the intention of it. Whatever we want to make of it. Now, again, in this section, there was no miracle recorded where the, 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 the bread and the wine became anything special. Okay, and I don't mean that in any kind of blasphemous way or um, disregard, but the fact is, I believe they're symbolic of the body of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. And when we partake, it's about our heart and our mind aligning to that faith that we have professed. Amen. Hopefully that makes sense. But again, in 21 and 20 through 23, Jesus predicts the betrayal that is about to happen, right? We just read it just one more time. He says, but behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the son of man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And see, Jesus said right here at this table, guys, there's 12 of you. One of you guys is gonna betray the son of man just as it's been determined. And see what that means is that Jesus knew he would be betrayed. It was promised in the Old Testament, right? There's Messianic Psalms that spoke about it. Psalm 41.9. It said, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And see, although Jesus' betrayal was prophesied, it doesn't mean that Judas was some kind of forced victim. Can we be clear on this? Again, I don't want to beat this too far, but we want to talk about it a little bit. Because the sovereignty of God is there in the midst of all of this. We can see that. But the free will of Judas allowed him to go out and do these things. And Jesus said, woe to that man by whom he is betrayed, right? Speaking of, of the Messiah, speaking of himself. He says, whoever betrays the son of man, man, he's going to have judgment coming to him and he should repent. He should take heed. Woe, right? Beware if you continue in these things. And see, Jesus even said in Matthew 26, 24, I alluded to it earlier, but here's the actual quote from it. It says, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. So here's the reality. Righteous judgment awaited Judas for his decisions. Now, if God forced Judas to make this decision, Judas had no choice in it. How could God judge this man? 
that would not be righteous justice. It wouldn't be righteous judgment. And I don't know about you, but I'm not going to violate the character of God that way. I'm going to say that Judas had a free will to participate here and to do what he wanted to do. And God knew it. That's how he prophesied it. God sees the beginning from the end. He sees all things. And yes, he chose you, but let's be real. You also have to walk this out. <laughs> you have to walk this out with fear and trembling. But and our decisions, the Lord knows what we're going to do with them, and he will piece them together in a way that keeps his sovereignty intact. I hope that makes sense. Now, does that make me a Calvinist or Arminian? I don't think it makes me either. I think it makes me just, hey, I trust what's here, and I can't comprehend it completely all the way. And any side that tells you they, they completely have it solved, the other side has an argument to, to disprove them. So if both sides can disprove each other, Calvinism versus Arminianism, that means it's somewhere in the middle. And so by scripture, I'm going to say, man, I believe Judas and his free will did this. God knew that he would do it, and God called his shot, and he fulfilled it, and Jesus knew it was going to happen. And note this, when Jesus says that this is going to happen, they were all perplexed according to John 13, 22. And they all questioned who, who was going to betray Jesus. They all started asking, is it I? Is it I? According to Matthew 26, 22. But see, here's the deal. Jesus told John in John uh, 13, 25, John said, hey, who is it that's going to betray you? Jesus said, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And then he handed it to Judas. And then Jesus told Judas, what you do, do quickly. And he still left and went and executed the betrayal of Jesus. Now, I think John at the time didn't even comprehend like, what do you mean? You're dipping the bread and giving it to him, to Judas? Like, what is he going to go do? Is he, betray is he really the one that's betraying? I, it didn't click yet. But we know that Jesus knew exactly who was going to betray him. And he spoke right at him at the table and said, it would be better for you not to have been born if you do this thing. And yet he did not repent. He did not turn. He ignored the words of Jesus. And it eventually led again to his destruction and perdition, right? We want to avoid that. So we have the preparation, the Passover. Now look at this. We go from the scene where everyone is like questioning if they could betray Jesus. This is wild to me. Look at what happens in verses 24 to 27. It says, now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. So really what happens here is we have a group of proud men. <laughs> it's kind of wild to me that so many times we want to look at this group and go, man, the, the dirty dozen, right? The 12 apostles, they were so bad news. They were always getting themselves into trouble. This is just showing us they're human. <laughs> they have egos. They have pride. Just like I hope you understand that you and I have these things. It's normal human vulnerability to pride that we're seeing here. And it's not the first time this has happened for the apostles. We know as we studied Luke chapter 9 many weeks ago now, but Luke chapter 9, 46 through 48, they reasoned the same topic. And Jesus had to correct them then and said, man, you guys need to be humble. The one that's humble like a child is going to be greatest in the kingdom. And see, we're not told exactly what incited this dispute between them. But I think since it was just a few, it seems like just a few moments after they all questioned if they, if they were the ones that would betray Jesus, maybe they started to look around and be like, well, you know, you're worse off than me, though. 
you're probably the one that's going to betray Jesus because you weren't there at the Mount of Transfiguration, right? I don't know. They kept that a secret, but you know what I mean? They start weighing out reasons. Peter's probably like, well, I walked on water for a little bit, right? And then Peter and John are like, yeah, and Jesus sent just the two of us to get the upper room. That means we're better than you guys. So now it's just a competition, competition between me and John, Peter would say. You could see how this could turn in to a contest to weigh out who is greater than the other. And it's so like typical and like us as humans, we go from saying, oh man, I'm so weak. I'm so capable of betraying Jesus. And then the next breath out of our mouth is how great we are. Like, welcome to being human. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. But today I can think I'm the best thing ever. And tomorrow morning I can wake up and be like, I'm just so weak. I'm so pathetic and vice versa, right? So Jesus is dealing with these fleshly men. And all Jesus wants to do is have a meal with these guys, man. It's like... Have we really been doing ministry for three and a half years, Jesus would think, and you haven't picked up on what it is to be a kingdom citizen yet? So Jesus interjects, and he reminds them, kingdom citizens, right? Those that belong to the kingdom of God. They measure greatness different in a different measure than men on this planet do, than men of this world. Jesus said the Gentile world of their time, much like the world of our time, they believed that greatness came by getting power and lording it over people, right? But Jesus called them to be counterculture in that sense. He said, don't be like the world's definition of greatness. He says, instead of esteeming themselves as benefactors, which meant expecting credit from people and people owed them things, don't do things just so that people owe you something. Don't do things just so people look at you and go, oh man, he's so great. He says, no, you esteem yourselves as being the younger, we say, what does that mean? In their culture, that meant lowly. The youngest son didn't get as much of an inheritance as the, big, as the oldest son, right? The youngest son was, was considered the lowly position. Jesus says, I want you to be the lower one here. And he says, you know why I can tell you to do that? Because again, Jesus is the best boss ever. He says, because I do that. I'm not calling you to do anything I haven't done myself, Jesus would say. See, Philippians 2.3 tells us, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let us consider others better than ourselves, right? So Jesus rebuked them and he reminded him, he said, hey, I washed your feet when you came in here. That's what Jesus is alluding to there um, when, he, when he says in 27, right? Um, he, says, he says, I've served you, right? I've taken care of you tonight. And the idea is in John 13, 2 through 17, Jesus washed the feet of all of the disciples. And to the point where Peter's like, dude, I'm not gonna let you wash my feet. He didn't call him dude. He probably called him Lord. Lord, I'm not going to let you wash my feet. And Jesus said, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part of me. He says, man, wash my whole body. Remember, and Jesus said, you don't have to be washed entirely. Peter, man, a man of extremes, right? And we see it here. He goes from thinking maybe, you know, like, is it I? To, no, I'm the greatest maybe. <laughs> and Jesus is telling him, man, you guys need to chill on this greatest stuff. <laughs> Look at me, Jesus would say. The king of kings has come and become the perfect servant, the servant of servants, perfectly and continually. The theme verse of the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark is Mark 10, 45. It says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus being the ultimate servant went and died. Instead of ruling and reigning, kicking us all out of heaven, which we, we all deserve hell. He said, I'm gonna die in their place so that the sinners, James and all of his brothers and sisters that are out there, that have believed in Jesus, that they can come in and experience salvation. He came to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus says, this is not how we live if we're kingdom citizens. It's not about how great we are on this earth. It's about the kingdom, amen? And so in 28 to 30, Jesus promised kingdom rewards though. 
for those that endure. Look what it says here, verse 28 through 30. It says, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus said, hey, look, if you serve God with the right heart and you go out here and you don't worry about being great in the eyes of men, you just lower yourselves, humble yourselves, you serve God and by serving God, you will serve others. There will be a reward for you. And it's not some temporal greatness here in the eyes of men who live a life like a vapor. Today it's here, tomorrow it's gone, right? He says, you need to live for the kingdom, be kingdom-minded, serving others in the name of God to further his kingdom. Colossians 3.2 tells us, set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. And see, here's the reality. The disciples like us, they get caught up in the ways of men sometimes. And so what Jesus is saying, no, don't be like that. Be kingdom citizens. I mean, we do it. Remember, our reward's in heaven. But here's the neat thing about this. We don't, we never deserve rewards. <laughs> we don't deserve heaven. The fact that we get to enter heaven is enough reward. But then Jesus says, here, I'm going to give you rewards on top of it because I died in your place. <laughs> and now you get blessed to have the spirit in you and to serve God the Father. He says, you have rewards coming. We don't do it for the rewards. We do it in a response to the grace and the mercy that's been poured out in our lives through the love of God, through the willing sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So what a blessing that we get there and there's going to be rewards. But for his disciples, there's actually very great honor for them because they actually endured, continued with Jesus through the trials of his earthly ministry. We know two things in particular. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 28, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's in the kingdom age, according to Revelation 20, verse 4. And Revelation 21, 14 says that the wall of the city, the 12 foundations of the new Jerusalem, on them were the names of the 12 apostles. So they get this great honor for being Jesus's 12, group of 12 that endured with him. Well, you know, 11, Judas, not so much. But the 12 that endured with him, um, you know, as they go out, their names will be on those foundations. Some people said, well, whose name is going to be on the 12th one? Maybe it's you know, is it, is it uh, Matthias? I, I, I don't know. Who's going to be on that one? Is it Paul? Some people said maybe Paul is the 12th apostle. I don't know. I don't think it's Judas's name, though. Judas is not going to be on there. <laughs> so you have all their names going on the foundations. They have great honor. And you say, well, what about believers? Well, we're told in 2 Timothy 2.12 that if we endure, we should also reign with him. But if we deny him, he will also deny us. So the idea is, as we endure with Jesus and walk in the ways and the things that Jesus called us to, we will reign. We know that we are to judge this world, according to 1 Corinthians 6, 2, in the age to come. So we're reigning with Jesus in some form and fashion, in that sense. We also will be put in a place to judge angels, according to Revelation. So there's going to be ruling and reigning for us. It's not going to be, I don't believe, the same honor, because we didn't literally walk the earth with Jesus through his trials. They're told specifically what they get, but we still are so blessed to be rewarded and honored in heaven and to be there with Jesus, the, the, the Lamb of God. And it tells us in Revelation, there's not even need for the sun anymore because God's the light. I can't wait for that. I hope you can't wait either. And so the last thing we're looking at tonight, real quick, just a, I think a good reminder, verses 31 through 34, it says, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. 
But he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Then Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you deny me three times that you know me. So here's the section here. Here's how we conclude tonight. And this is why we're taking a break right in the middle. Again, it's a long chapter, long section. But Jesus turns to Peter here. Remember, they're coming off this conversation of greatness. I'm thinking that Peter probably esteemed himself to be the greatest. He's walked on water now for a little bit. Uh, Jesus told him that uh, God has revealed to him, according to Matthew 16, I believe it is, that you know um, he revealed to him uh, not by flesh and blood, but that Christ was the rock, right? Uh, Peter's probably thinking, man, I, I'm the leader. I'm the guy here. And so Jesus turns to Peter and he says, listen, Simon, it's also the name for Peter. He says, listen, Satan has asked for you. And he wants to sift you like wheat. <laughs> that should sh like send chills down our spine to think about. First of all, in this section where it says Satan has asked for you, that word you in the original language is plural. He's asked for this whole group here, this whole group of apostles. He wants to destroy you guys. And he wants to sift you like wheat to the point of chaff. Like he wants to blow you away in the wind the way that Judas will get blown away for giving in to Satan. <laughs> but what does Jesus tell him? Jesus says, look it, I have prayed for you. I prayed for you, that you in verse 32, I believe it is. Let me find the verse for you. Um, yeah, in verse 32, he says, but I have prayed for you. That's singular. Jesus prayed specifically and personally for Peter, that he would have faith that would not fail and that he would return to Jesus and strengthen his brothers. And see what this means is that Jesus knew that Peter was not gonna betray him but deny him three times. He said it. He predicted it with perfect preciseness as we're going to read the rest of the chapter next week. He sure enough is going to deny Jesus three times before that rooster crows. And once that rooster crows, Peter weeps over the fact. He goes, oh man, I've denied that I am connected with Jesus. He thought he was so strong in his own strength. He said to Jesus, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. He thought he was just so strong. And Jesus just simply tells him in verse 34, he says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. And see, Peter thought he was strong, but he was trusting in his flesh. Man, he was going to get humbled and he'd have to come back to Jesus and be restored. But here's the good news. Where Judas betrayed Jesus and did not return to him, he died and was destroyed and into perdition, into judgment. But Peter... He denied Jesus three times. Instead of running away, he didn't just stay remorseful. He came, he ran up to Jesus on the beach at John 21, 15 through 19, and Jesus restored him three times, one time for each denial. Jesus is ready to give out mercy and grace and restoration for every shortcoming that you and I have had in our walk with him. And here's the reality. Jesus says, I know this isn't gonna destroy your faith. It's a stumbling in your faith. You come back, you come to me and strengthen your brother. Get back to work. <laughs> This is the encouragement tonight. Maybe you've slipped up this week. Maybe your attitude, maybe your heart. I had a moment like that this week where I just felt like my attitude was garbage. <laughs> and man, the Lord was so good to meet me where I was at and just time in his word, time in worship, time with him. And the Lord just reminded me, man, you have work to do here. You can't do it in your own strength. Now that you've been humbled, come back to me, be filled with my spirit, walk with me, do the work and lead this church. And so for you, brother and sister out there, if you're having a tough time with the Lord this week, it's time to stop trusting in your own strength, your own intellect, your own knowledge, your own talents, whatever the thing may be. Come back to the Lord. Do it in remembrance of him. Partake of communion. 
And yes, there's bread, there's juice involved, but worship him, study his words, spend time with him, reconnect with Jesus. He's ready to restore you and reconcile to you that beauty and that blessing that is fellowship and a walk with Jesus Christ. And it's all by grace and mercy, by faith, amen? So with that said, that's the first half of Luke 22. We're gonna finish it out next week, but let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come before you now, Lord, and we just thank you for your goodness, Lord. We thank you for your willingness to, to save wretch, wretched sinners like us, Lord. And then not just to save us, but to redeem us, Lord, and to bring us in like adopted children, Lord. Uh, that we have received the righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for that, Lord. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd fill us to the point of overflow, that we'd be able to walk in those works that you've prepared beforehand, Lord, that we would glorify you and edify the body and testify to the world around us. And right now, if you're praying and you, you realize that you have strayed from God, that you've strayed from Jesus Christ, you need to come back tonight and trust in him. You need to ask for him to fill you again with his spirit. And if you've never had this relationship with Jesus Christ, right now you can begin this re relationship. You can enter this new covenant we've been talking about by saying this prayer. It starts here and it, it turns into a walk with Jesus Christ, a daily walk, but it starts with this prayer. You'd say, Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sin. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I trust in you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, hey, thanks for hanging in there tonight, rolling with us through Luke 22, half of it anyways. Three more studies. We're done with the Gospel of Luke, it looks like, the way I'm plotting it out. And then, uh, Lord willing, we'll be moving into the book of Acts after that. So if you want to read ahead, that's where we continue. Luke wrote both of them. It's kind of a part one, part two in my mind. Um, so we're going to continue right into Acts after this. But thank you for being online with us tonight. If you have any questions about anything we taught, please reach out. Feel free to shoot me an email. Give me a call. All of our information is on our website, ccmckinney.org. Love you guys. Have a blessed night.